from the Center for European Reform. This is the CEA podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Welcome, everybody, to this new Centre for European Reform podcast on the state of the Brexit talks. I'm Charles Grant, the director of the Centre for European Reform, and I'm talking today with my colleague Sam Lowe, a senior research fellow and a great expert on trade matters. We're going to discuss where we think the Brexit talks have got to, where, where they're going to go and what might be the possible outcome. And we're talking on the day, in fact, when Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, is meeting three European presidents of the Commission, Council and Parliament in Brussels, but we don't expect the outcome of that meeting to make what we're saying particularly out of date, because we think these talks are moving very, very slowly indeed. Let's start off with an overview, Sam. Um, I think you, like me, suspect that a deal is still quite possible, despite all the negative briefings from, and, the, and the angst we hear from both sides. Why do you think a deal might, in the end, be possible, given that the two sides seem to be so very far apart on so many issues? I think a deal is still possible because Fundamentally, it is in both the UK and EU's interest to have a structured ongoing relationship and to avoid barriers to trade where possible. And I think when you see, look at the fundamental differences as they stand, so these would be the uh, differences over the level playing field provisions. This is the areas where the EU has asked the UK to either commit not to roll back existing levels of protections, as is the case for labour and environment, or to continue to follow EU rules, as is the case for state aid, but also disagreements over fishing, over the structure of the agreement, over the role of the Court of Justice. There is a route through. There is, you can see how a compromise could be found. However, my, my, my fear is that at the moment, the respective negotiators, Michel Barnier and, and David Frost, have hit the limits of what they're able to achieve without further political intervention. So whilst I think a deal is possible, I don't think it will probably, I don't think it will happen until later in the year, following um, some quite significant political intervention, both from the Prime Minister in the UK, but also uh, the leaders of the member states. So the summit at the end of this week between uh, EU leaders isn't going to be the something that moves things forward very much. When do you think, Sam, when do you think we could get the kind of high level political contacts that could lead to a, a deal? Does the EU have to itself meet internally and work out a softening of its position on some issues or, or, or not before, before any, any compromise happens? Well, I'd say optimistically, the, the, the discussion today between um, Boris Johnson and the, and the three presidents and then the summit at the end of the week could lead to progress on the negotiations if they uh, agree to increase the space available to Michel Barnier to seek to meet his objectives via alternative routes and that could that could help progress the negotiations but yes it's true if the eu and uk are to reach a deal the uk will have to move away from its opening position of course it will but the eu will have to budge a little bit as well and i think on two specific issues uh, this is very much the case the first being on fisheries where the eu is asking for the UK to continue to maintain the status quo when it comes to fisheries, which is, is, is certainly not going to fly in the UK's 
uh, offering something completely different, asking for annual negotiations of quota share, but also state aid, where the EU is asking the UK to continue to apply the EU state aid regime within the UK indefinitely into the future. The UK is not going to buy this. So is, is there another route towards the EU achieving its objectives? My answer is yes. I think on fisheries, there has to be a middle ground between never negotiating on quotas again and negotiating every year. Could you negotiate every five years, every 10 years? And on state aid, I think the EU can achieve its objective, which is to retain the ability to protect itself from unfair competition uh, by companies in in the UK that have been unfairly, in their view, subsidised by the British state. I think it can do that via retaining the ability to uh, re-implement tariffs in the event of a breach by the British and also by holding the British to the same objectives when it comes to state aid. So not to ask the British to have the exact same rules, but they should at least have the same impact in reality, in practice. Has the COVID-19 crisis affected this argument on state aid, Sam? Because everybody in the EU is subsidising their industries right, left and centre, and so is the UK. They generally do it rather less in the UK than in some EU countries. So uh, I know the EU says it's very, very worried that Britain will out-subsidise it in certain modern high-tech industries and steal an unfair advantage. But isn't that a, a bit unrealistic even in ordinary times? And in the time of COVID-19, a bit, a bit, a bit unreasonable when, when everybody's just using lots of state aid anyway? I think I think it's an interesting one in that for some reason or other the EU UK discussions on state aid seem to be happening in their own bubble unconnected to the wider world where of course we've just seen the taps have been turned on everyone subsidizing everything and this is why I think it's important that there is an effective framework that can evolve over time but from an EU perspective, what they need to be able to, to achieve is to be able to guard themselves from unfair competition in the future, irrespective of what that looks like. So it's about ensuring you have the tools available and not necessarily being so prescriptive, because as you've just said, how it actually is being applied in practice within the existing EU regime right now is uh, very, very different from how it has been in the last few years. And it looks to be, be changing every week. So, 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 so binding, in, binding the UK to what exists right now is probably not the way to go. And it probably is unreasonable to ask the UK to continue to bind itself to the EU's state aid regime uh, forever because it's ever changing. We don't know what it's going to look like. And, and to be honest, it is an issue of sovereignty. It, I think it is a slightly unreasonable ask. Well, you've, you've said in a couple of areas the EU is going to have to moderate itself, uh, its demands on fish and state aid. But of course, we both know the British will have to change their line on a number of areas too, probably rather more areas. Could you say the, tell us the main areas where, for example, level playing field or the structure of the deal or justice and affairs, uh, data? I mean, where will the British have to make some, some moves? Well, I think it's fair to say that if you look at the history of the negotiations, if there is to be a compromise, if there is to be agreement, whilst the EU will have to move a little bit, the UK will have to move a lot. And I think that's true here as well. On level playing field, first, the UK needs to accept that the the broader principle of non-regression and commit to not roll back existing levels of protection. It also will need to accept that these commitments should be enforceable under the dispute settlement system and can ultimately, in the event of a breach, lead to the removal of benefits that are afforded by the free trade agreement. This is something that the UK says it doesn't want to do at the moment. In terms of structure of the deal, the UK wants to have individual pillars of cooperation, say on trade, on justice and home affairs, 
on uh, security cooperation that are all unconnected. Whilst the EU wants them all tied together under some sort of a broader f- governance framework. So I think the, the image you always paint, Charles, is one of a Greek temple. So you have the pillars of cooperation with a horizontal block above, uh, which, t- which binds them all together. I think the UK is going to have to concede to the EU on this. The U- EU does not want to recreate the issue it had and is trying to rectify with Switzerland, in which it has many different agreements, all with their different dispute settlement processes, and it's caused them a lot of problems. It's not going to do that with the UK. The UK is going to have to budge. In the event, the other issue the UK has is on the role for the Court of Justice. And here I think the issue is slightly misunderstood. First, it's important to say that the UK has already conceded the point on the Court of Justice. It conceded that point in the withdrawal agreement. The argument it makes is that's only temporary because it's largely in relation to citizens' rights. But that's not true because it also applies in the respect of Northern Ireland and in respect of state aid in Northern Ireland. And that has broader ramifications for the UK state aid regime where rules are made centrally for the Northern Ireland, but also the country as a whole. And I think here the UK can't get away from the fact that if if there is a dispute over an interpretation of an area of EU law, then the European Court of Justice opinion on that will be binding and will be taken into account by the arbitrators that are ruling over the case. What the UK can do, however, is ensure that there are very, very few instances when a dis- where a dispute would be over the interpretation of EU law. And I think it can't avoid that entirely. I think you're, you can speak much better than me to issues about uh, data sharing in the context of security, where I think uh, the EU does certainly want a role for the Court of Justice. But in the trade space, I do think it is possible to largely remove the Court of Justice from the discussion, because we're not talking about the UK staying in the single market here. We're talking about quite a loose relationship that comes with a lot of friction as, as, as the baseline. That's great. I guess before, before we leave the likely or the possible deal, are there some black swan events that could actually end up disrupting? You mentioned just now data adequacy, but obviously the British side, I think, assume that the EU will <clears throat> grant them data adequacy, which means that it's okay for companies and security organisations to exchange information with each other easily, which I think is not a not a given. There's also um, uh, the issue of the, the European Court of Human Rights on the Justice and Home Affairs uh, side of things. Uh, the EU is insisting that Britain not only stay in the European Convention on Human Rights, and that, to be fair to the British, the government says it doesn't want to leave. It also insists that we, we shouldn't be able to amend the Human Rights Act, which implements the ECHR into British law. Uh, without their permission, which seems a little bit uh, a little bit extreme by by some standards. So, are there are there issues that you think could trip up the talks that we haven't yet focused on? I'm not sure if they're they're black swans in that. I think that they are slightly foreseeable and 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 wouldn't necessarily catch catch me by surprise. But I think it is important to state that beneath the headline disagreements, there are other areas in which the UK and EU do not agree. So they don't necessarily make the front page of the newspaper, but they certainly will cause some difficulties in the negotiations. So to give one example of this, the UK has, in its draft negotiation text, has suggested that the EU agree to enhanced mutual recognition of professional qualifications in that they're asking the EU to go much further than it has done with its deals with Canada and Japan. And just to explain uh, what the UK ask here is, they're asking that if, take for example, I were an engineer and had an engineering qualification, they are asking that my qualification would continue to be recognised across the EU 
once I had registered uh, with the relevant qualification body, and this could be subject to an aptitude test under certain circumstances. Where this differs from the single market is that I would have to register my qualification in the relevant member state. It wouldn't be, I couldn't rely on temporary recognition for the purpose of cross-border sales or for fly-in, fly-out. But this does go beyond what the EU has done with other free trade agreement partners, where generally speaking, it just creates a framework for dialogue between the relevant qualification bodies and tries to pressurise them into uh, recognising uh, each other's respective qualifications, say a qualification body based in Japan and a qualification body based in an EU member state. The difficulty here is that A, it goes beyond what the EU normally does in its free trade agreements, but B, it's also quite a tricky area when it comes to competence within the EU, as in qualifications aren't handed out by the Commission. They aren't usually even handed out by member state governments. They're often handed out by private bodies that have been granted the ability to do so by a member state government. And getting them all to cooperate has been <laughs> very difficult in the past. But this is just an area, one example. There are, there, are, there are multiple others, uh, disagreements over mutual recognition of conformity assessment, also disagreements over over rules of origin, so the process by which uh, goods are deemed to be local enough to qualify for tariff-free trade. So yes, there are lots of smaller hurdles uh, lying beneath the larger ones. But my view here is that if we can deal with the headline issue, state aid, fish, court of justice structure, then we will be in quite a good place. And I don't believe these more minor issues would uh, torpedo the agreement in its entirety. I think, I think we could resolve them. So, Charles, I suppose one of the big questions here is whether Boris Johnson can sell a compromise to the Eurosceptics and his own party later in the year, or if he's less able to do so than he was last time. Well, it is true, Sam, that last October, in order to get an agreement on the withdrawal agreement uh, with the EU, Boris did do a U-turn and accepted border controls on goods crossing the Irish Sea which, between Britain and Northern Ireland, which he said he never would. And he, he got away with it because he was in a strong position. He was a charismatic leader and his party wanted a deal uh, and he was fine. And so why shouldn't he do the same again this time? I think he can do the same again this time. I think he's in, a, in, a, in some ways in a stronger position now. He's got a majority of 80 in Parliament, which he didn't have last October. And he's, he won the election in a very pronounced way. So he can do it again. But against that, in the last month or so, there's a lot of gossip in the Tory party that Boris isn't turning out to be the leader they hoped that he would be. Um, the Dominic Cummings affair, when he stood by his advisor who made a trip home to the northeast of England in the middle of the lockdown, which he shouldn't have done. The fact that Boris stood by his advisor has really undermined some of his, his legitimacy or authority, not just with the public, but also with, with even Tory M MPs. You'd expect the opposition to be opposed to Boris and the Cummings affair, but quite, it was notable that quite a few Tory MPs have also got annoyed with Boris. Then there's a the handling of the COVID-19 crisis. I think the general consensus, including amongst many Conservatives, is that the government has lost its grip a bit, seems to be all over the place on the quarantine rules recently, for example, and the, the lack of the reopening of schools, which had been promised. And the general perception is that the government doesn't have a clear sense of direction on COVID-19. So overall, Boris is actually weaker today than he was when we last spoke in one of these podcasts a couple of months ago, quite notably weaker. I still think he can sell the deal, the compromise to, to, to his, his domestic base and to his party, but it isn't quite such a given as it might have been. And certainly he may therefore hesitate to make the kind of compromises that would annoy some of his backbenchers uh, because he's, he knows his position is rather weaker than it was. 
I I, th- I I agree with you because I think also if there is to be a deal, the EU will have had to have budged from its opening position on fish, for example. And and if he is to, if he focuses on that, he can sell that as a win. I suppose my other question to you, Charles, is does the impact of COVID nineteen change the political dynamic for the UK with respect of whether it actually wants a deal or not, or if it thinks it can disguise the negative impact of leaving the transition without a deal beneath the much greater immediate shock of COVID-19? Well, the main impact of COVID-19 is it's distracted both sides of the Brexit negotiations from the Brexit issue. They just had other priorities on both sides. I now think on both sides, though, there's a realisation they have to make this one of their priorities, uh, despite the impact and the importance of COVID-19. More directly, the impact of COVID-19, I think in a rational world, Sam, because COVID-19 is decimating the British economy, it, we now have learned it shrank 25% in March and April. You'd think that the case for avoiding a very hard Brexit that will, according to almost all independent economic analysts, cause further economic disruption, though by a much smaller degree than COVID-19, that the, the case for, for a hard Brexit is, is greatly diminished because businesses have spent so much time and energy and effort preparing for the or adjusting or, or failing to adjust to COVID-19. They don't want the extra burden of very hard border with lots of extra bureaucracy at the border to come in very quickly, or if at all. You'd think that in a rational world, but we're not in a rational world. And certainly, I think we've both heard uh, senior conservatives on the right wing of the party, on the more Eurosceptic wing of the party, saying, well, look, this is a great opportunity to go for Brexit now because COVID-19 is taking chunks out of the British economy. So if we go for a hard Brexit or indeed a no deal Brexit, which means that GDP falls by six or eight percent further over several years, nobody will notice the difference. Everybody will blame the economic misery on COVID-19. So we can get away with the hard Brexit and nobody will ever prove that the misery was caused by Brexit. We've heard people say that. There are people in Downing Street who apparently say that. They haven't said it to me personally, I must admit. So I think there's the, the Tory party is still very divided, although in, in theory, outwardly, they're all united behind Boris Johnson's leadership. There are at least three groups within the Tory party. There's a hardline group of kind of revolutionaries who, some of whom live in Downing Street or work in Downing Street, who really want to know deal Brexit, who believe that a kind of re- revolutionary uh, moment where everything is smashed to pieces and you start again is actually what the British economy needs for a, a, a revived, Thatcherite, economically liberal future. There are one or two people who believe that. They're not a majority, of course. Then there's many other people who I think, including, I would guess, and I don't know for sure, Boris Johnson and David Frost, his chief Brexit advisor, who actually do want to deal, but not on the EU's terms. They really want to deal, but, but not if it means compromising very far. And this is the dominant faction at the moment. Then there's a third faction who are very, very quiet, who say very little, which certainly includes most of Whitehall. One might suspect includes Rishi Sunak, the finance minister, and several other cabinet ministers who are, who are keeping mum at the moment. They actually want to deal almost at any cost. They, they are very worried about the economic disruption caused by no deal. They'd rather have a softer Brexit than a hard Brexit because they think that they understand that a hard Brexit is rather similar to no deal in the disruption that would be caused, particularly at frontiers and to service industries. Uh, and they, they will, I think, speak out more in the autumn than they are speaking out at the moment. I've talked recently to various industrialists and they say they're not speaking out uh, they didn't speak out against the no extension decision that the government took recently not, when it decided not to extend the transition. They're not at the moment speaking out for a softer Brexit or indeed uh, a deal because they think they'll it'll be counterproductive because number 10 is so 
hostile to some of the organised big business lobbies and to the major corporate chieftains. They think it'll be counterproductive and they're scared of being punished by number 10. They're, they're honest about that. But I think come the autumn, when no deal approaches, if the government can't forge a compromise or a very hard Brexit approaches, then you will see businesses speaking out more than they're speaking out today. I think some Tories will speak, start to speak out too, because some Tories, particularly newly elected MPs in so-called red wall seats that used to vote for the Labour Party, where there's a lot of manufacturing industry, will be worried about the impact of no deal. So I do think that although today the government is united behind uh, uh, the, the, Boris Johnson's hard line on Brexit, by the autumn, the world may look a little bit different, especially if if, if the government is in a weaker place because of COVID-19. We're not, we're not sure at all about what will happen there, but it's very uncertain. So, so one of the things I, I, I hear quite a lot from the EU side is that if there is to be a compromise, it can only come about because there's trust between the UK and the EU. But what's your view over the last month or so? Has, has, has trust become more or less of an issue in these discussions? Well, I hear the same from the EU side, Sam. And uh, I think it's, you know, some people who talked on the EU side, it's fairly senior level, say that trust is for them the number one issue in these negotiations. Because in order for there to be a compromise uh, that, that everybody buys, signs up to, there's going to have to be a lot of trust that, that the British don't try and wriggle out of it later, and, and vice versa, of course. And I think the, the EU side feels that trust is rather lacking. Something that did enormous amount of damage on the trust side of things was the Northern Ireland issue. Although in the, in the withdrawal agreement last autumn, as we've discussed, the British did sign up to this idea that goods passing from Britain, from Great Britain into Northern Ireland would have to be checked and controlled as they go into Northern Ireland, as if they're going into the EU. Although the British signed up to that, they, then the Prime Minister and a lot of his senior ministers started saying, well, actually, they wouldn't be border controls after all. So the EU started to wonder whether the British uh, signature on that bit of paper was 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 valid or not. And that did quite a lot to undermine trust in the UK. Now, recently, that's got better on the particular Irish issue, because Michael Gove has made clear that he understands that there will have to be controls on goods transiting from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. So I think the EU is fairly reassured on that particular issue, though they're not totally reassured because they, they worry that Boris Johnson may say something different tomorrow. That's one issue. Another issue is the political declaration which of course is not a legally binding document. This was also agreed last autumn, signed by Boris Johnson, with a just sort of sketch for the framework of the future relationship. And the EU side is quite adamant that the British have reneged on what they signed up to last autumn in a number of areas. areas. The, uh, on foreign policy, they, they said they wanted a close, a close and cooperative relationship, and now they don't want any relationship at all, and no structured relationship anyway. On the structure of the deal, which we've discussed already, uh, the British didn't take such a strong line last autumn and saying they wanted a series of disconnected deals without any links between them. And particularly on the level playing field, the British did last autumn sign up to respecting level playing field provisions, and now they're saying something very different altogether. Now, I don't think the EU is blameless either. The EU certainly strengthened its, uh, changed its line on state aid since last autumn. But certainly, when I talk to people who are EU negotiators, they are quite upset that the British have gone back on the political, their word in the political declaration, even though, to be fair to the British, the political declaration is not a legally binding document. And then there's a, it's just general the rhetoric and the provocations coming out of some Conservative politicians, the anti-EU rhetoric, uh, generally the, the idea that the, you know, the EU needs us more than we need them, which you keep hearing, which kind of riles the EU a bit. 
the fact that the, 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 when the British politicians say the EU is scared of no deal, they'll, they'll come and they'll come cap in hand and beg for a deal because they're so scared of no deal, given that we're a big export market. That, of course, is not how the EU sees it and doesn't help. And I also think a final factor undermining trust has been the fact that, as we've already discussed, the British government, what are, what are its intentions? Do we really know what they want? Or is it clear what the British are actually trying to achieve in these talks? Uh, how much are they willing to compromise? There are so many different factions within the British government. So I think for the EU, lack of trust is one of the major obstacles to building a, a viable long-term future relationship with the UK. And I think the UK can overcome these difficulties. As we've seen on Northern Ireland, when Michael Gove has put his stuck his neck out and said, well, there will be controls on goods going across the sea. I think as, as if, if we can sort out some of the other issues you've talked about already, Sam, like level playing field and the structure of the deal, and that'll help to build the trust that we need to get a deal. And of course, hopefully the personal relationships um, will help somewhat. Uh, Boris, Boris can build a personal relationship with Ursula von der Leyen. I mean, they don't know each other very well, but that would be very helpful. I know the British, of course, tend to think, well, the Germans will sort it out because the Germans export so much to the UK, they will ensure there's a deal. And we, the Eurosceptics in this country, Britain, have been saying that for the last three years without it ever really happening. But what is true is that people in Berlin do want a deal without question. It'd be wrong for the British to think that the EU is divided at the moment. I think the EU is pretty much united behind the line Barney is taking. But there are differences of emphasis. The French are always the hardest line on all these issues. The French are quite overt about wanting to use the Brexit talks to get industry and financial services and uh, legal services to relocate within the EU, for example. They take a very hard line on that. The Germans, I think, take a more strategic line. The Germans are worried about the, the sort of future security implications of a... A, a very a very acrimonious Brexit, a hard Brexit or a no-deal Brexit. They worry about the, the implications for the EU's relationship with Russia, China and America and so on. There is a difference of emphasis between the French and the Germans and others in the EU. I don't think the British should count on being able to play a game of divide and rule. Well, the, 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 the British have tried that before several times in the last four years. It hasn't really worked. So I think we can look for the German presidency, which starts in the six months beginning July the 1st, to be helpful and to look for accommodations to, and to go the extra mile to try and find a way of resolving these difficulties. But ultimately, as you said yourself, Sam, the British are going to have to move on some of the issues on which they said they won't move if there's going to be a deal. And if there's not a deal, then it's going to be pretty, pretty damaging for the British economy and for the Britain's political relationship with the EU as well. To conclude, I'm going to put you on a spot. End of the year, deal or no deal? Deal. Yeah, I agree. Thank you, Charles. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CEA underscore EU.